Dear God, I thank you for each person here. Lord, we do thank you for the relationships in our lives. Not everybody here is married, but Lord, hopefully have deep friendships, business partnerships, close to a neighbor, good relationships with parents. I don't know. We are a relational uh, people. You have wired us this way. You have wired us to desire uh, to attach to others, to have these connections. Lord, I pray that those connections can be as strong and as beneficial and as much of a blessing as you intend for our lives. Lord, help us to have uh, marriages that others look at and see a picture of the gospel, that they see joy, that they see um, a beauty to those relationships. And so we just ask that you would open our minds uh, to what Delhi has to share with us and what we can discover from the Word as we wade into that. And I just um, ask all this in the name of, above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, Deli, if you'll come on up. Oh, she's up. All right. There we go. Okay. So, um, I don't know, do you want to introduce yourself any more than what I said? No? You're good? Okay. All right. Um, Well, so she is an EFT therapist, which you may or may not know what that is. Uh, That's her, I mean, she pulls from different things, but that's kind of the main approach. Uh, could you talk a little bit about EFT and what is unique about the specific therapy? Just give us a little understanding of that and how relationships work with that. Yeah, so, EFT. Is it on? Okay. Hello? We have a green light. I don't know. Testing. Okay, I'm there, on. There we go. Awesome, thanks. I think we got it. Thanks. Um, so EFT for me was a game changer. I'd been a therapist for quite a while, um, maybe 15 years or so. And um, someone suggested EFT to me. I had never heard of it, which stands for Emotion Focused Therapy, um, created by Sue Johnson. And um, I'd never heard of it, so I went and checked it out. Absolute game changer for me. It is an attachment model um, in which we bid for attention, we bid for attachment with each other, um, whether it's our partner or our parents or coworkers, and everybody every day constantly bids for attachment. We do it in some pretty toxic, dysfunctional ways, which don't work, but um, it, nonetheless we do it. So EFT is an attachment model created by Sue Johnson. Um, she is a secular therapist, but profound in her discovery of this dance. And basically, it is, it is the infinity cycle um, on its, well, it's the eight on its side. Um, but yeah, it looks at what's going on, and if you see your notes here, if you see the infinity cycle, and then behaviors, narratives, emotions, fears, and longings. So there are, did everyone get one of these? I did print off more up here if anybody needs one of these outlines. Um, so this is basically, there's kind of five layers. They were in the bulletin. So. They were in the bulletin, and I have more up here if you need them. So there's just basically five layers that I work down through, and EFT focuses on what is going on within an individual, within the other individual in the relationship, and then what's going on between the two individuals. So regardless of who they are, um, EFT focuses on, basically it's three entities that I'm working with. It's What is happening up here? So when this person does this behavior, this person feels this emotion, comes up with this narrative or story about themselves or the story about the other, and then does this behavior. When they do this behavior, the other person has this emotion. So that's kind of the cycle we work through. It looks really simplistic. It's actually quite profound. We do it every day in a million ways. Um, And then as we go on, we go down into the fears and the longings and Um, The fears and longings are what drive our behaviors. And if we're not in touch with what we're feeling, we are often missing the mark. Um, So it's not a matter of emotions are in charge. They are not. And in fact, I heard an analogy um, several years ago probably. I thought it was profound. It said, um, you know, that emotions are kind of like kids driving in a car with kids. You don't put them behind the wheel, but you don't put them in the trunk. And I love that analogy because too many of us put the, the kids behind the wheel, right? And then we go over the cliff, and, or we put the kids in the trunk and we pay no attention to them. 
and we have no indicators of what's happening. Our emotions are indicators. Um, and they're also what I love, Sue Johnson, Sue Johnson calls them uh, the music of the dance. So without our emotions, we live in this black or gray world. We don't have color. Um, and so emotions are color, but they're also um, indicators as to what's going on. And if we don't pay attention to them, we go off track. Okay. I also think of emotions as like warning lights on your dash in your car. Um, they can kind of tell you what's going on and, and maybe what's uh, a dangerous thing. And, and also go read the Bible and look for um, the idea, and you may not think about this much, but God seems to have an emotions. You know, he seems to have emotions, and I think it's part of how we're made in the image of God. So anyway, okay, next question. Um, can you give us an idea what this dance looks like in real life? I can. So I'm going to draw out the, um, the diagram you have there um, on, your, on your sheet. Um, and this is basically, I don't always draw this out, but I typically draw this out for people um, in our sessions. And it's a rather small board up here. Um, so what I do is, is pretty much, and I'll kind of give you an indicator um, of what this can look like in real life, but imagine taking these scenarios and put absolutely any scenario you can think of in here. Everything from um, domestic violence all the way down to a sigh or an eye roll. And if you don't think a sigh is triggering, watch the next time somebody, your parent or your partner, sighs really big. It is highly triggering. An eye roll, a shift, a jaw flex. So we put a behavior over here and I'll try to move so you guys can see. Um, so let's say, for instance, and this is kind of a minor, I know, and it can get way more serious than this, but let's say a husband comes home late for dinner, okay? This is a behavior here. He comes home late for dinner. I would imagine, based on, I don't know, the average woman, she might feel um, invalidated. She might feel disrespected or unseen or unloved, right? Um, she may feel taken advantage of. And this narrative right here is a, is a killer because she might say to herself, we say it one way or the other, we say it about ourselves, I don't matter, my time's not important, my work doesn't matter, um, I'm just the wife, whatever we say, right? So whatever our narrative is, it's often somebody's voices and it typically also matches our personality style. Uh, the other way to do this is we say something about our partner uh, we might say something like, he's so inconsiderate, or he doesn't care about my time, or, you know, it's all about him. Life's all about him. So we might say something about ourselves and about our partner, um, one or the other. And it's really important to kind of identify that. And then, if, she, if her narrative is, you know, he doesn't care about me, all he thinks about it himself, she may come up here and escalate and come at him and yell at him and say something like, you know, you don't even care, you're so inconsiderate. So she may come at him, which is a bid for attachment. Strangely enough, it's a reach. We call those reaches, but they're toxic reaches, so they don't really work, right? Because as she comes at him with that toxic reach to be seen, he's not going to feel compassion for her, right? He's going to feel probably attacked, defensive, angry, misunderstood. And he likely will say something to himself right here, along the line of, she's so critical, I can never get it right, nothing I ever do will please her. Or he might say, I'm such a failure, right? I work so hard, I never get it right, nothing I ever do will be right. So he might make, make it about himself, and then what happens often is when this per other person makes it about themselves, they often go down what I call like the self-loathing tube, and so they basically disappear on their partner, or imagine if a parent, if you come try to tell a parent this is my hurt, this is my wound, whatever, and the parent goes, ah, oh, just a terrible parent, terrible mother. Well, now you've gone down that little self-loathing tube and the kid has to go fish you out and prop you back up to talk to you. Same with parents, right, or uh, partners, is we have to bring them back up here, and it's a really good technique to get your partner never to confront you because if every time you do, they do, you disappear, the partner's not going to really confront you that much. So, um, or... or she might say about herself, you know, he comes home late, she feels really disregarded, unseen, unloved, and she might say, I'll never matter, nothing I ever do matters, my dad never valued me, nobody ever values me, and she gets quiet and disengages and, and withdraws. So we typically do one of a couple things. 
we will withdraw or we will reach, right? So whether it's, a, a, you know, whether we throw a coffee cup at them or we simply say a snarky comment, it's still a reach. Um, and often we will escalate. So typically what happens if two partners come in my office and they're both withdrawers, it's a fairly quiet session. And I have to pull them both out and make sense of why, what's going on, right? If both are escalators, it can be really exciting. Um, and, and that is often harder to calm to get them to de-escalate. Typically, the scenario is one is a reacher or escalator, the other is a withdrawer. So what happens then, and this is just a kind of a little insight here, is what happens is, especially, and I, I don't want to make this all about gender because it's not, we have different personalities, but when a wife is an escalator or a reacher, Quite often, if the husband is more of a peacekeeper or a withdrawer, he's going to step back um, and try not to fight because, believe it or not, men hate to fight with their wives. And there's lots of wives that will fight rather than be disregarded or ignored um, because it's a bid for attachment, right? It's a bid to be seen. So what will happen is she will reach for him. He will go this way and kind of disconnect or minimize it. She is likely not going to tell herself, he's trying to not fight with me. He loves me so much, he's trying to keep the peace. She's probably going to say, he doesn't care. I'm not even worth fighting with. I'm not even worth understanding. I'm not worth him pursuing me, right? So that's typically, or she will say, you know, um, he doesn't care. He's just calloused. He doesn't care how I feel. So she's going to make sense of his withdrawal wrong wrongly, incorrectly, she's going to make sense of it incorrectly um, because he's pulling away to not fight. So when he pulls away to not fight and she escalates and comes after him, it is basically a, especially if there's trauma involved, it is a, you are leaving me, I can't see you, you are not here for me, I'm going to come after you. And then that looks a lot like, oh my gosh, she's angry, she's coming after me. And so he backs up even more and she escalates even more because it's kind of like if you ever tried to run away from a toddler, it doesn't work. It's scaring them. And so basically, men, when you pull away and disengage and get quiet, women, we don't know what to make of that, and it scares us. We feel invalidated or unseen. So it doesn't mean you have to fight with us, but it does mean you have to lean into us. So, um, you know, or it could go the other way. There's plenty of wives also that withdraw and um, disengage to not fight. And quite often, I tell wives, those husbands are dying for you to push back and stand up to them. Um, and... and Men actually really, really love that when they are trying to engage with their wife and their wife keeps just falling back on them and not engaging. If I can get her to push back and stand up and say what she feels, husbands go, oh, there you are. Now I can see you, right? So if we withdraw or disengage to keep the peace, we are not keeping the peace. We are actually kicking the can further down the road and it's going to get way worse. So it's not that we have to fight either. That's not what I'm trying to say. There's just a better, healthier way to engage here. But, um, yeah, that's typically what's happening. Uh, so how do our God-given male and female tasks and questions play out in this EFT dance? So men have kind of a typical question they're trying to answer, um, a task they're trying to perform, women the same way. Um, Walk us through that a little bit, some of the gender differences. Okay, so I, I tend to do my, my practice from about four or five different sources that I pull together, and it just is what works for me. So these next couple of things here are from John and Stacy Eldridge, Captivating and Wild at Heart, if you're aware of those. So um, a male's task, and this is part of what we've already, I'm sorry, a male's basic question. And this is part of what we've already talked about because it all ties into this EFT therapy is a male's basic question in life is, do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to be a man? And so if you watch a two-year-old, any of you who've raised boys, um, over and over and over, hundreds and hundreds of times, they're going to be saying, watch me. You know, watch me climb the tree. Watch me kick the rock. Watch me learn to swim. Watch me shoot the bear. Whatever, what, you know, watch me. And what they want to know, what they want to hear from their dad is, you got it, son. You're all over that. You can do that. You figured it out. Um, and they're really wanting to know, do I have what it takes to do the next, next task? So if it's to get the job or make the sports team or 
uh, buy the truck? Do I have what it takes? And, you know, so many dads are like, um, they don't encourage them or they don't support them in doing that next thing. They don't build them up. So when a, when a son hears you got it, you're all over that, his ultimate task, and from what I understand from men, the scariest task is to pursue a woman's heart um, because rejection is terrifying. So um, pursuing a woman's heart is the main task. I'm sorry, I got that a little bit wrong. Um, that is his job is to pursue a woman's heart, but the task is to resist passivity. So that whole sense of do I have what it takes to be a man, his task in life is resist passivity. And that looks like everything from try out for the sports team. It looks like don't sit on the couch when mom's carrying in groceries. It looks like um, open the door for people. It looks like a thousand different things with resisting passivity. Don't embrace passivity. Um, you've got to embrace it. And once you, embra you embrace pass or resist passivity, you can then pursue a female's heart. So the female question is basically, do you see me? Am I worth pursuing? Right? So what, that is what every female out there longs for is, do you see me? Do you see my heart? Do you see me? And is my heart worth pursuing? Am I worth pursuing? So what happens then is if a man's question is never answered, if it's never validated, and he doesn't believe he has what it takes, he can't pursue her heart. He might be able to pursue her body. He might be able to pursue a marriage, but he's not able to pursue her heart because he has to believe he, he has what it takes because that's pretty scary from what I understand. So that's part of where he is. So if she is seen and if she is validated, um, that then goes to the core. Patrick Doyle, and he's not on here, but he says men will sometimes say to him, he's a therapist also, and he says men will say, you know, nothing I ever do will please her. And he, Patrick says, you're right, and nothing ever will please her until you pursue her heart, until you know her, right? So at the core of every woman is this question, do you see me? Am I worth pursuing? So watch your little girls. They're going to go out there. They're going to twirl in their dress. They're going to say, do you see me, Daddy? You like my hair. They're going to um, get in front of the TV um, when Dad's watching the TV, and they're going to get in front to try to be seen, right? And if we are not seen in a safe, healthy way, that is not good, right? Because we will be seen. So we will either, uh, the world will see us in a, in a um, way that is seductive, that is inappropriate, they'll see us sexually, and society will abuse women in that way, or a lot of what I grew up in, in a, a really legalistic, um, hurtful, painful church, was women are not to be seen, right? They are to cover up and be quiet and sit down, and basically don't be beautiful. So it is at the core of every woman, you know, our, our basic longing, our question is, do I, am I worth pursuing? Am I worth pursuing? Do I have what it takes? Um, and her task, and I do want to do a little bit of a disclaimer here because this may sound, this may be a little bit, um, uh, may trigger some people here depending on what your background is, but the task of a female is that she has a beauty to reveal and that might be physical it might be spiritual, it might be in the form of a, a business she creates or a podcast or a painting or a, a room she decorates. It could be in the form of a child she raises um, at dinner. It could be a thousand things, but women, we have a beauty to reveal, and that's yours to discover what that is, right? Um, so part of that is understanding it's not about just be pretty and sit down. It's no, there's something more in you that you have to bring out. We are designed to create. So again, if, if our beauty is seen and, and taken advantage of and ravaged, right, that's, it, it, it's seen, but it is not treasured and it's not kept safe or respected. So, yeah. One, one thing I would add on, on the men and passivity, you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and if you read the text carefully, you know, everybody blames Eve and, you know, she tasted the forbidden fruit. And, and yes, that, that is true. But if you read the text carefully, Adam was right there with her. And he was passive. He didn't intervene. He didn't, uh, he didn't step in. He didn't defend her. And so that passivity, we see it all the way back in, with Adam and Eve. And it is one of the great struggles for men. And it's something that you really have to reject. 
And so I just encourage you men. Um, I, I am curious, and this wasn't one of our approved questions, but so if, if, the, uh, if the female does the pursuing, what does that do? I'm just curious. Well, it's not that, that females never pursue. Yeah. And it's, I mean, we, we do each other, right? So it's not that we don't pursue or that they don't, um, they aren't seen and that we don't reach for them. I said that backwards. But um, I, I think we are. We can, right? So there's lots of times. We're not just passive people over here. We're, we can initiate a lot. Um, and men can receive. But that original design, that original reach, and that a, a original receive, to kind of add on that, and this was not original with me, but that when Eve took that fruit, she did not receive it. She took it, Right? So she took what was not hers. She was proactive and took it. And she did not receive it from God. Um, and that's Kurt Thompson again. But yeah, I mean, no, it works just fine. But that initial pursuit has to be in here. Because if, if the woman then, and what we'll often do is we will often go, oh, he's scared or he's not going to pursue me or I'm not worth pursuing. Um, then what we will do is most women I know will help you guys out. We will step in. We will make sure you see us. And we will make it easy on you. But by doing that, we have upset that balance, right? Because then he never has pursued, and she never got pursued. And so it changes that whole balance there, makes it a little bit wonky. I told my daughter, and I hope it's okay, honey, if I share the story. I, <laughs> she's looking at me. Too so late now. I, it's too late now. I told her when she went to college, I said, if, a man's not, if he's not brave enough to pursue you, he doesn't deserve you. Make sense? And so okay. the man she's sitting with pursued her to Alaska. Yeah. Okay. He's, he's pretty brave. Yeah. So, yeah, so, but she was pretty worth it too. So, and then to add a little bit more to that, I want to make sure I add this. You know, beauty is very powerful. It invites, it inspires. Um, and then I want to step, can I talk a little bit about pornography? Sure. To put that in here. Um, Pornography, when it enters the picture, it invalidates both the male and female question because pornography basically steps in the middle of the two and says to the man, you don't have what it takes. She'll turn you down. She's too scary. She's too, too high demand. Don't pursue her. I'll never tell you no. I'll always smile at you. I'll always be beautiful. I'll always be here for you 24-7. So pornography basically says you don't have what it takes to pursue her or, you know, she's not worth it. Um, and, and so basically it, it invalidates the man. Um, and then it also invalidates the female because she doesn't know what's going on. She's over there going, well, he's just not pursuing my heart. And so what she says then is, I'm not worth it. And that, that pornography, that face in the middle is what wins. Um, it takes less than three seconds. I thought this was absolutely fascinating. Um, I'm sorry, I missed, missed one. Pornography breeds shame and shame then metabolizes. It takes less than three seconds for the neuro effects of shame to register and embed in our brain. Three seconds. And I think we've all probably felt shame on some level at some point, right? It takes three seconds to embed into our brain. It takes 30 to 90 seconds to fully receive an emotional load of a compliment. So a minute and a half later, you're way down the road, right? I mean, lots has gone on since then. So three seconds for shame to create a neural pathway and an emotional connection to that neural pathway in your brain. And it's there. And then what we tend to do with shame is we run over it and over it and over it, right? We create a pathway there. So if, you know, you, you, you did something stupid yesterday, how many times have you thought about it already? You've created a neural pathway right there. So shame, and then it's connected to all the feelings with that experience, and it is now a groove in your brain, literally, right? So then it takes 30 to 90 seconds to register a compliment. So allowing our shame, and this is a lot of what I'll get into in a little bit here, allowing our shame to be seen in the presence of a safe community allows it to melt away. Community opens our eyes and opens, in our, opens our heart. And one of the things, Kurt Thompson, I cannot talk about him enough. He's, he's a lot of this here that we're talking about. But Kurt Thompson talks about um, when, when Christ was on the cross and felt shame, he didn't kill shame. He let it melt away that as he was experiencing shame, he let God see him. And as God saw him, shame melted away. We don't, we don't kill it. We let it die. And that, that was kind of a, a really cool thought there, is that that's how, sh that's how shame goes. 
is in, in community being seen by another. Okay. You want to talk any more about longings and how to address them? Sure. About the next question? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about our longings. And this also is um, Kurt Thompson. I was several years ago, down, went down to um, Tennessee and was going to this huge convention and signed up for a seminar that I, I'd never heard of Kurt Thompson, and I went in, and, and I, I could not, I could just barely hang on to what he was saying. He was so brilliant, but so profound. He is a uh, psychiatrist, but he also does a ton of work down here with the soul, and with longings, and with beauty. And so basically what Kurt gave me, Sue Johnson was profound, and she was a game changer for me, but she was very secular. So I kept trying to put scripture or, you know, the design, how we were made over the top of this. And I walked into Kurt Thompson's seminar and he did it for me. He was amazing. So he, he gives me the, um, the scriptural lens to lay over the top of this. And he talks a lot about our longings. He said, basically, and to me, this was just phenomenal. He said, we long to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. Um, seen, soothed, safe, and secure. That when you know, he talks about when a baby is born, the very first thing that baby needs, the very first thing, is to be seen. If we do not see that baby, it's out of luck, right? So the very first thing it has to be seen, it immediately needs soothed. So we swaddle it, we hold it, we put it skin on skin, and we soothe that baby, and we see it, and we soothe it. For a long time. We keep it safe. We create a safe environment for it. So if you notice, after a while of being seen, safe, and soothed, that baby will start to kind of venture out a little bit, and it'll run out a little bit and come back. And you can watch kids all the time in the store do this. They go out a little bit, and they come back. And then they eventually, they feel safe enough to venture a little more. And that last part, that secure part, is when our children feel seen, soothed, and safe in a seen, soothed, and safe environment, they are now secure enough to go out. And they go out to kindergarten, and they come back. And then they go out to junior high or you know, high school, and they come back. And then they can go further. They can go to you know, um, sports trips, or they can go to college. And, but they continually go out, and then they continually come back to where it is, they're seen, soothed, and safe. Um, because life is really rough. So if we go out and life knocks you around, and it does, um, we go out, we get beat up, we get wounds, we get hurts, we come back to where we're seen, soothed, and safe, whatever that community is as we grow, whether it's our parents, whether it is um, a church body, whether it is a marriage, um, whether it is a small group, we have to have a place where we are seen, soothed, and safe. Otherwise, we cannot have a secure launch and go out into the world and be healthy and, and connect out there. But we will forever, till the rest of our lives, until we die, go out and come back, go out and come back, right? Um, so I love that part that he talks about that. Uh, when our longings are not met, we orchestrate our own safety. We come up with our own ways to be safe. Um, and truly, we're not safe. It is just our own way of trying to be safe. And it's what kids raised in, in violent homes or domestic homes or uh, domestically violent homes or... Um, even uh, where absent parents are, you know, or people who are addicted, even if they're both there, kids have to come up with something. We will all reach for something to be safe. Um, so we orchestrate our own safety. A while back, I, I, I was listening to Andy Stanley. I don't listen to Andy Stanley a whole lot, but I caught some of his messages, and I, to be honest, I didn't listen to the whole message. I think he's very good and very funny, but I was heading to work. But he talked about um, what we will do, and he was saying it in a way that's kind of funny, but um, that what we do to kind of have good relationships is, he said, we convince, we control, we coerce, and we convict each other. And he's not wrong. We do that, right? We all do that with each other. We convince, control, coerce, and connect to get our needs met. Problem is, it doesn't work, right? So it's not just that we do those things up here, because we do. We, we do those things probably hundreds of times a day. We try to get our needs met up here by trying to manage ourselves or the other person. What and, and Andy Stanley might have gotten to it. I didn't hear his full message. But the reason we do these things is because we are down here longing to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. So we are trying to create that environment by these very dysfunctional 
toxic ways that will never work. Um, it's, it's, that's kind of what we do as human beings. Um, there was a, a, a phrase, and I don't know who said it, maybe you do, but um, that we all walk around with quiet desperation. And I think if you think about that, we all lead a life in which we walk around with quiet desperation without those needs being met. Um, I was listening to Suzanne Stables, and she talked about the darker side of longing, which I've talked about longing for years and years. Um, and we all, if you think about it, if we slow down, because if I ask you, what do you want? You might tell me, well, I want this or that, right? Something up here. If I ask you what you need, you might go, oh, I don't need it. I just, I want it, but I don't need it, and kind of debate that back and forth. But typically when I ask people um, in the office, what is it you long for? They typically go, oh, and they go down here. And quite often tears come to the eyes because we all have a longing, something we desperately need, right? And we don't get it met. Uh, often we don't get it met. So we all have this longing that we want. Um, and Suzanne Stable, she said the darker side of longing is languishing. And I thought that was really correct, that when we never get our longings met, and I mean longings like safety, security, belonging, attention, um, just to matter, right? To be understood. A lot of men long to be understood. That's one of their things is, I just want to be understood. Um, but so when we don't get those deep longings met, we walk around with a quiet desperation. We don't know what to do with it, and we languish. And I, I loved that. I thought that was really brilliant. Um, Kurt Thompson talks about we languish, languishing has to do with what we expect, what we expect out of life. Um, and there are times that, that people will say to me, well, so I, I long for a dad. I never had a dad growing up, or I never had a safe dad, or I never even had a home. Um, and that's incredibly tragic because everything about them longs for that, right? But what I tell them, and it's incredibly sad, but we have to grieve that loss. We, we can't walk around with it just hanging open. We have to grieve our loss and acknowledge, I had a longing, I still do, not going to happen. We have to grieve it. And there's times that people will just, they just want like, you know, a... a an innocent marriage where they start and they're fresh and they're innocent. It's like, well, that's not going to happen now, right? So we all long for stuff. Uh, while they're trying to fix that, because I think you can hear me, one, one thing on the longing, um, particularly for men, but I think women want this as well, in the Old Testament they actually had like a, a structure where the father would bless the sons, they would bring them in and bless them. Um, you can go and see it, and if you want to see a son that's, that's in agony because he doesn't get the blessing is Esau, that story of Jacob and Esau. And so um, that's a longing. Now we can get these deep needs met from God ultimately, uh, but it is interesting to see that, you know, in our culture we don't have that necessarily as a formal thing, but your sons, your daughters want your blessing, um, both from mom and dad, but it is one of the unique things that, that dads often kind of do in a special way, particularly for their boys. And so that's, that's one of those longings that, that I think is important. Okay. Am I on now? Yep. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, so the, we need to grieve our losses that we're not going to actually get them met. Um, and, and I know there's scripture that says God will restore all these things to us. I don't know how he's going to do that, but for now we get to grieve. Um, and in order to grieve our losses, we have to name our grief what is it? What is it we're grieving? We have to name it, put a name on it. Um, if we can name our longings, we become aware that it is not, oh, and this is going back to addiction. So if we reach for something, because we all reach for something, we absolutely will. It does not matter if it's 
uh, busyness or um, sex or addictions or food or isolation or approval work, we will reach for something, I guarantee you, because we can't exist without it. So we will reach for something, but typically we are not, what we're reaching for is that legit original need down here to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. So we have to name our longing. Um, and if we can name them, we can, we can become aware that our addiction or our behavior that we, that we crave, the, the addiction, um, again, whether it's sex, alcohol, food, isolation, um, but we are actually longing to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure. Um, addictions are not about, are not about, sorry, let me back up. Addictions are about meeting our own needs in isolation, not allowing others to see us and meet our needs for us. We are, again, orchestrating our own safety. Um, yeah, so addictions are about, or, isol or, or behaviors, whether we isolate, whether we eat, whether we um, work, it doesn't matter what we do. It's about us meeting our own needs in our own way, on our own terms. And there's not a lot of risk to that other than it's not healthy, right? It's not how we're designed. It's, it leaves us isolated and alone in the end. Um, so, uh, yeah, so when, I, I love this, Kurt says, when we are attempting to meet our own needs outside of biblical guidelines, we can know that one or more of the four S's are in play and are not being met. I, I, I like that, I thought that was really good. Um, and he says, we are people of great longings and we are people of great grief. We must be seen in order to heal. That requires an other. Shame cannot exist when seen in a safe, soothing, and secure community. And we allow it to fall away in the presence of a safe other. Um, and one of the things I want to talk about a little bit, is there another question? Okay. Okay, I'll get there in just a minute. So we allow um, shame to fall away in the presence of a safe other. We ingest a new experience in a few seconds. We digest it in a few hours, and we metabolize it for a lifetime. So kind of going back to that three-second, 30 to 60-second, we have to go back and uh, do repetition. It takes repetition for seven days to metabolize a new practice or experience and allow it to create a new neural pathway in our brain we must practice remembering what this new experience felt like and live it over and over. And I love this because basically, I mean, if you're like me, and maybe you're not, but when you do something that embarrasses you, shames you, something where you feel you know, stupid, you go over it and over it and over it, right? You just repeat it and you wear a path over and over and over. So if it's, a, if it's something somebody said to you that you're, you know, you're worthless, you're going to replay that over and over and over in your brain, and you will literally create a new neural pathway with all the emotions attached to it. So that is the full body experience of shame, of longing, of rejection, and that neural pathway in your brain will connect to all those emotions, and it will all light up. When we allow ourselves to be seen by somebody else, in that place where our shame is exposed, what happens is the shame starts to fall away a little bit. It feels amazing, you feel seen, you feel safe, you feel soothed, and you have all the bodily feelings of it, right? It's like, oh, I, somebody finally saw me, I'm finally safe, I'm finally seen. And then you go away and, and you forget about it and you go back into that awful place of that old groove that, oh yeah, the shame is back. That good feeling only lasted for 10 minutes or you know, a day while I was talking to that person. It will go away because what happens is we have to create a new neural pathway. Bible, the Bible talks about uh, renew your mind, and this is what it's talking about, is creating a new neural pathway with all the, the, the feelings, with all the felt sensations of being seen and soothed and safe. So if, if you have that experience only once for 15 minutes or an hour and then you leave, it's not going to stay. It's kind of like if you walk over you know, freshly mowed grass and your footprints are there and then you never walk over it again, it's going to disappear in minutes. But if you walk over that spot again and then again and then again, you will now create literally a new neural pathway in your brain in which now you have a worn path. 
with all the new feelings, with all the sensations, with being seen, with being accepted and loved and secure and safe, and you will have a new pathway. You will have um, a, a renewed mind, like Scripture talks about, right? And so um, the other piece I love here um, is Kurt Thompson, one of the first times I ever heard him, I, I was barely hanging on to his words, and he talked about a cloud of witnesses that we all, you know, the scripture talks about a cloud of witnesses. And we all have a cloud of witnesses in our lives. And for many of us, it's really toxic. It's really negative. Those voices in our heads, those old pathways, they're really toxic. And he talked about the fact that we need to get a new cloud of witnesses to create, to, to go along with that new neural pathway in our brain. So when somebody sees you and they love you and they accept you and they say you are worthwhile, that is your first witness. Get a second, get a third. You've got to start building a new cloud of witnesses to go along with that new neural pathway because the old ones are right there too. And you've got to let those fall away. And you don't kill them, they fall away as you create a new neural pathway to go in. I, I just thought that was brilliant. I love him. Um, I would encourage all of you to kind of start watching him. And then I was listening to him and Suzanne Stabel talk, and she has a practice called the Micah Center. And she said they have a tagline, um, which I want to share with you. They call the Micah Center a place for solitary work that can't be done alone. Because we cannot heal individually on our own, especially if it's shame, with no one seeing us. Shame has to be seen and seen in a safe, healthy place, not in a toxic place. But shame has to be seen in order for it to fall away. And we can't do our solitary work alone. So I have some recommendations there as well for you at the end. Well, I didn't answer your last question. Do you see God's role play out in this dance with us as his creation? So what I love about that... better yeah yeah it's better have you guys not been able to hear me like oh. hear, yeah okay all right um so what i love about that the way god's role plays out in this i i was um sitting with a couple and we were talking about it and and as i was going through it i'm like oh my gosh that what that's what that scripture means is that original where the man reaches and he pursues a woman's heart right so men are pursuers women are responders um, and again, that's what I was trying to say earlier, is not that we never reach and not that you guys never respond. We absolutely do. But that initial reach and that initial response, um, God did that initial reach, right? We did not respond before he reached. So we love because he first loved us. He reached for us, and we responded to that, which was really cool when that gospel piece fell into place for me in the EFT cycle. Um, and the cool thing about that is when we escalate, when we withdraw, when we attack, when we say all kinds of accusing things to God, he never misunderstands. He never goes, well, that wasn't very nice, and blocks or defends or withdraws or pulls away or throws something back. He never does that. He always, he gets this down here. He gets down here in our longings, and he knows why we do what we do. And so that is often, if we can... And which is, this is really hard, but if we can interpret bad behavior up here from our kids, our partners, our friends, whoever it is, if we can go, oh, I know what that is. I know why you're screaming at me. I know why you withdrew. It's because you felt afraid or alone or it was a bid for my attention. And it might be toxic and it might be dysfunctional, but that's what it is, okay? So God reached for us. We respond to him. And basically, Sue Johnson, secular, she showed us the gospel right there, I think. And it was very beautiful. Okay. All right. Thank you. I know that was a lot. Um, so I do have a little bit of time. for. So let me, um, let me just... Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about marriage and a pretty familiar passage, 1 Corinthians 13. Just pull out a few things. You know, love between particularly a husband and wife, she talked about relationships all across the board. I'm going to talk mainly about marriage, although some principles apply to, to others as well. You know, love is a little complex. It's a little hard to get. You watch children trying to get it. I, I 
came across this letter that was in a book by Robert Fulgram, and it said this, this is the entire love note from eight-year-old Susie to Billy. She wrote this. She said, Dear Billy, if you don't say you love me and walk me to the bus stop, I will kill myself and beat you up. I love you and want to marry you soon, Susie. Now, I mean, that's what in the world. At age 24, they actually got married, and the pastor put in the vows for Susie, promise me, I promise you, Billy, never to kill myself or beat you up. So I wish them the best. I'm not sure about that. Marriage, and in our culture you have to define it, we used to not have to, but marriage is a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman living for the glory of God. Okay, We have to be clear since our culture is so confused. And in 1 Corinthians 13 we get to the importance and the permanence of love. Now I love 1 John 4.19 which she referenced, which is that we love because he first loved us. Out of God's love for us, that allows us to be a channel uh, to offer that current of love to those around us, whether it's our spouse, our kids. And so we find this wholeness ultimately in God, although he does design us to have these other relationships, these attachment. Remember, in the garden itself, um, it says that it's not good for man to be alone. And so um, God, you know, even though it's Adam and God, there's still this, um, God likes us to have these other relationships. Um, the most important one is the vertical relationship between us and God, but these horizontal relationships with those around us matter as well. And love really is the cardinal Christian virtue. It leads the list of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, you know, love and joy and peace, and it goes on. It really is at the heart of the Christian ethic. You know, we're, when Jesus was asked what are the greatest commandments, he talks about loving God and loving other people. And so love is truly at the heart of how we are to live. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, the first part of verse 8, it says this, and there's a lot, I can't pull all this out, we'll just pull out a couple ideas. Um, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. So what I want to pull out is a persevering love. And I think there's a couple angles on this or parts of it. A persevering love offers grace. If you're going to have a persevering love, a love that hangs in there, a, a marriage of 50 years, it's going to have to be this persevering love that offers grace. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13.5, notice that it's, it's not easily angered. Notice that it keeps no record of wrongs. Marriage has this remarkable ability. One author said it's like a, a mirror. And marriage, really above any other relationship, reveals who you are. It reveals all your flaws because you have this other person in your life who, who sees them. And, and so this, um, they see your flaws, you see their flaws, and so grace is the only thing that's going to make it work. One author said this, he said, you never marry the right person. See, in our culture, we think it's all about marrying the right person. And I'm not telling you to just, you know, throw a dart and, you know, at a wall of pictures. I mean, have some discernment, have some wisdom. But the reality is, once you've chosen them, they are the right person. And so, the way it's going to work is offering grace for their flaws, for their weaknesses, for their sins. Because sin poisons every relationship. Sin poisons every marriage. And so there are going to be those moments where you frustrate and angry. you're angry at each other. Um, and, and it's interesting, we are so self-centered and we don't even see it. I loved what one speaker, author said. He said, ask yourself what would be a good day in your marriage? And I immediately began to think of, well, you know, you know, Delhi hears me, sees me, you know, maybe does something kind for me, whatever. And you start going down that road, right? Well, stop and think about that. What's a good day in my marriage? I immediately went to, oh, you help me, you affirm me, you serve me. You see what I'm saying? That's self-centered. That's selfish. 
And yet, that's what we tend to do naturally. And so, as followers of Jesus Christ, who have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we can live differently. And a good day for us, we can say, you know, a good day for us is when I serve my spouse. I care about my spouse. I hear my spouse. I listen to her. And, and so, we step away from this natural sin-directed, self-centered approach to marriage. I mean, if you really stop and think about it, why did you marry who you married? Aren't a lot of the reasons selfish? Well, I think she'll make me happy. I think she's beautiful. I think she'll be a good mama. It's like, well... And so, flipping that... And whatever her flaws are, whatever his flaws are, offering grace to that. And offering grace to yourself so you can grow and change. So challenge your thinking. Persevering love offers grace. Because the only antidote to sin and the poison of sin in every relationship is grace. And grace is simply unmerited, undeserved favor. I know you didn't treat me well. I know you said something unkind. I know you weren't very thoughtful, but I'm going to offer you grace. I'm going to offer you forgiveness. You know, when you think about the gospel, a great summary statement would be the idea that, that we're more sinful and broken and flawed and rebellious than we really think we are. And yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted by Jesus Christ, by God, than we even dared to hope. And that's good news. God offers us grace. He reached for us first, despite all our sin and our rebellion and all of this. And so if we're going to have good marriages, good relationships, we have to offer people grace. And so you love people as they are. Now you hope for change, you root for change, you help them change sometimes. But we have to be really careful about this. I mean, I, I chuckle, and I, I guess I'll pick on the women a little bit, but so many women marry a guy, and they're like, yeah, he's great, but he needs to change this, and they have the whole list, right? I think men do it too. I just hear it more from the women. Ruth Bell Graham once said this. She said, a happy marriage is the union of two forgivers. And so if you want to have a good marriage, you have to forgive the other person. You have to offer grace. You have to be a person who comes alongside and helps them to heal and to grow and to be whole. Not their prosecuting attorney. Not always um, pointing out their flaws. So many of us have a critical spirit when it comes to that. I appreciate a question I read years ago. Gary Thomas, he asked this. He said, "If what if God designed marriage to make us holy, not happy? And I think that's very, very true because you know what I hear, because I've been in the ministry a long time, decades now, when somebody says to me, well, I'm going to get divorced, you know, the first thing out of their mouth, almost always, I'm just not happy. I want to be happy. And really, that's not the top priority of marriage. The top priority is to make you holy. And you hope happiness comes with that, and usually it's a byproduct of holiness, but it is having a right relationship with God and this other person and serving them and loving them and thinking about them, not just, you know, meet my needs, meet my needs. And so, I think that is so important. You know, when I stand before God, I'm not going to be asked on Judgment Day. I mean, I, I don't know what all He's going to ask me, but I don't think He's going to ask me, how well did Delhi love Derek, you're not going to ask me that. But he is going to ask me, how well did you love your wife? And so we are to be people who offer our spouse, our kids, our friends, um, business partners, whoever it might be, grace. It's important. A persevering love also hopes. 1 Corinthians 13.7 says, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Hope is about um, confident expectation based on truth. And you want to have a Christ-centered marriage that it's centered on the hope that we have in Christ. We want to look at life and our marriages with an eternity kind of lens. That we're living on mission. 
That the ultimate goal is not just that we're happy together. The ultimate goal is that we bring honor to God. The ultimate goal is that we make disciples, starting with the children in our homes. That we point them to Christ, that we come alongside of them, that we pray for them, that we sow truth into them. That we have this hope for heaven and that we long for that. That we understand that this life, whether we get a hundred years or just fifty years or whatever it might be, it's just this little tiny bit compared to eternity. And so we want to live for that. We want to be a, we want to be a hope, a confident expectation when that people see a difference in us because we're centered on Jesus Christ. Don't you think the world would notice if the divorce rate among Christians was zero? Think they noticed that? Or if it was close? Now I will tell you, when it comes to the divorce rate, when it comes to people just self-identifying as a Christian, that, that rate of divorce, about 50%, is the same as those who aren't Christians. But if you dig in on that number and you look at, well, do they actively go to church? Are they in a small group? Are they people who pray? Do they give? You start looking at these markers that indicate there's some actual um, effort behind this claim that they're a Christian, that they're actually embracing the lifestyle that comes with that. And you see committed Christians, the divorce rate's much, much lower than the world's. And so... We need to be people who offer hope. We see the best. In Philippians 4.8, this is a verse I love and I come back to a lot. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You know, the longer you're married, the more those attributes, character flaws, sins that are in the life of your spouse, they, they can really wear on you, Right? And so you have to actively work to see the good, to see what is noble and right and joyful and something you can celebrate. A persevering love never gives up. It says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, and then also 7 and the first part of 8, love is patient. So it hangs in there. Um, love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. See, that kind of love doesn't fail. Our culture refers to love and makes it just an emotion or this emotional state we talk about falling in love. Psychologists tell us that that state of falling in love lasts about two years. And after that, a couple better figure out how to actually not just operate on their feelings but to make decisions of self-sacrifice, of commitment. It's why we say vows, because we don't always feel like we love the other person. See, a persevering love is a love that stays, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard, even when it's challenging. And there are going to be challenges in married life. The Apostle Paul, it's almost amusing to me, but in 1 Corinthians 7, and churches don't tend to talk about this much, but the Apostle Paul actually talked about the advantages of being single. Matter of fact, he, he says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 28, part B, but those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. I've never seen that on a wedding invitation, never seen it, you know. Like, you could reconsider this. Folks, divorce is a huge deal. It's a huge deal. I'll never forget our daughter Maria was at uh, Denali Elementary and, and they passed out report cards and I think it was my daughter and maybe two other kids out of a class of, let's say, 25 that only got one report card. It was that skewed because they were from divorced homes and you had to send different report cards, you know, one to each home. I hate to break it to you, and I'm not trying to add guilt, but children are not okay after divorce. They pay dearly. I hear it. Counselors hear it. Other pastors hear it. If your parents divorce, it is one of the most painful things in a young life. It's painful. It's one of the reasons we see a lot of 
younger people who don't want to marry because they've been through a divorce and they don't want the pain of that. They're afraid of that. About 40% of American children are growing up in fatherless homes. That has a massive societal impact. Boys need their fathers. They need father figures. There's an old African proverb that says, if we do not initiate the boys, they will burn the village down. (laughs) Might be overstating it. But boys need a father. And if you find yourself in that situation and, you know, hopefully your dad, you know, as a grandfather can step in, maybe you have a brother, they need, particularly boys, need that godly, fatherly influence. Girls need it too. I don't want to downplay that. Statistically, those who go through divorce are less healthy, less happy, have a higher risk of substance abuse. I mean, stop and think about it. It's a massive loss, a massive grief. It's like a death, but the person's still alive. And it piles on rejection. So in our text, it talks about patient. Love is patient. That means long-suffering. That means going through the I'm sorry's, the painful conversations, the willingness to die to selfishness to make a marriage work. You have to be a person who will regularly sow kindness, deposits of kindness and love and self-sacrifice and service to your spouse to make it work. Sacrifice is key to the covenant of marriage. It's this powerful, it's not just a contract, it's a covenant. The two become one in God's eyes. And so you have to sow these small positive behaviors and you might be thinking, well, I've been trying a little bit, but my husband is a jerk or my wife is is really, really difficult. You can change your marriage by yourself. It takes time, but you can continue to sow the positive. Now eventually they have to help you. I appreciate, I love the verse Galatians 6, 9. It says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So you sow the selfless service. You sow the truth. You sow kindness. You sow grace. And you will reap a harvest. God will bless those efforts. You might actually ask your spouse, what is it that I do that actually blesses you? That, that helps you, that you, you feel heard or seen. You know, yesterday we went, it was kind of our, we, we did a family Valentine's thing a little early, but it's when people get together. And I've always wanted to go curling. I've never gone curling. So we went and did that yesterday. Um, if you saw video or, or pictures of me doing it, it's not pretty at all. The stance is a little more difficult than I thought. But, uh, um, but we did that because I'd say, you know, I'd like to try that sometime. Never done it. And my wife set it up. And um, it was funny because I was interested in doing it. I'd actually reached out to the curling uh, club and the person, we know the person. And so Deli had reached out before I did. And so I get this email back where they totally blatantly lied to me that there's no starter, you know, come in and learn. Because they're like, you know, because they knew my wife had already figured out, you know, a time to for us to come do that. So, I don't know where you are this morning. Honestly, you might be sitting here and your spouse is at home and you feel like your marriage is on the last little thread. I just want to encourage you, don't give up yet. Don't give up. We believe in a God who does the miraculous and I acknowledge free will. I acknowledge it takes two to have a marriage. But you can substantially make a difference. And He can take some of the most broken, painful relationships and He can restore them and heal them and create a wholeness that was not there before. The marriage relationship matters. And God doesn't want just our marriages to survive. He wants them to thrive. He wants them to flourish. And so the big idea this morning is this. At the heart of marriage is persevering love. Not just the emotion of love. Persevering love. A love that shows grace. A love that 
relies on the Christian hope, a love that doesn't give up. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank You for today. I thank You for the chance to be here together. And Lord, I pray for each person who is married, for that special, unique relationship, Lord. We, we pray for there to be repentance where there needs to be repentance. We pray for healing, for restoration, where there's great brokenness and pain. Lord, I pray for those who have gone through divorce and Your Holy Spirit can comfort and encourage So many people I know are like, I didn't want it. And there's great rejection in that. There's great pain in that. Lord, we know You can heal and You can help. You can comfort and encourage. Lord, I pray for those who have had their parents divorce. And there could be old wounds that still are throbbing, still hurting that pop up when they begin to date someone. Lord, I pray that You would do the deep work of cleansing and healing in their lives. We invite Your Holy Spirit to do His work. Lord, I pray that our relationships would point people to You. That they would point to the Gospel. Unmerited, undeserved grace. Motivated by love. This is our prayer in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.